0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing and engineering today's program. Later in the second hour of the program today, we'll hear from Marjorie Dannenfelser. She's the president of the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. We'll talk about the 24th, which will be the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v.ersus Wade. We'll also hear from James Spencer, D.L. Moody Center, where he is associated. We'll talk about contentment and uh, anxiety and the love of money and um, all of that coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, the search for the missing Ocean Gate Titan submersible came to a tragic end today when search and rescue teams discovered a debris field on the ocean floor near the wreck of the Titanic where the crew was headed before losing contact with their surface vessel Sunday morning. The debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. Under uh, this determination, we immediately notified the families on behalf of the United States Coast Guard and the entire Unified Command The Coast Guard said at a news briefing earlier today, the announcement came after uh, hours after the U.S.G.C. or rather U.S.C.G. alerted the public that a robotic vehicle made the discovery. A debris field was discovered within the search area by a rove, an ROV near the Titanic, the U.S.C.G. said just before noon. ROV, or ROV, stands for Remotely Operated Vehicle. Experts were evaluating the information. The Titan lost contact with its surface vessel, the Polar Prince, around an hour and 45 minutes into its dive Sunday morning, about 900 miles east of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and around 400 miles southeast of St. John's in Canada's Newfoundland. We understand debris has been found, which may be the landing frame and the Rear cover of the tail instrument compartment of the, tit- uh, the Titan rather lost on previous dives. Well, it turned out to have been uh, Oceangate. Inside the vessel were Oceangate CEO Stockton Rush, British businessman turned adventurer Hamish Harding, father and son Shahazda and Suleiman, um, both on the vessel. Uh, Dawwood, who are members of the uh, Pakistani's uh, wealthy, uh, wealthiest family, and Paul Hendry, a, um, a former French Navy officer and leading Titanic expert. These men were true explorers who shared a distinct spirit of adventure, a deep passion for exploring and protecting the world's oceans. The Ocean Gate statement said, our hearts are with these five souls and every member of their families during this tragic time. Well, Special Counsel John Durham testified to a House committee yesterday about his lengthy investigation into the origins of the FBI's Trump-Russia probe aiming sharp retorts at two Democratic lawmakers who sought to detract him from his findings. Last month, Durham released a report you're probably familiar with criticizing the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation of whether Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign conspired with the Russian government in an effort to win the election. Some of the takeaways from the former U.S. attorney's um, testimony before the House Judiciary Committee I thought would be worth mentioning – House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan talked about the main sources for the anti Trump dossier, assembled by former British spy Christopher Steele, which became the FBI's uh, predicate for starting the crossfire hurricane probe. Well, Durham's grand jury indicted, or rather indicated that uh, Russian citizen Igor Danchenko, a U.S. resident who's been a Russian analyst for the Brookings Institution in Washington, he was the primary source for the uh, Steele dossier, but was acquitted in a trial. He is the primary subsource. A few years before doing this uh, work, he was investigated by the FBI for doing espionage. Is that right? Jordan asked. Durham replied that the FBI stopped that investigation, believing that Danchenko had returned to Russia. However, he actually remained in Washington. Jordan said of the FBI and Danchenko, they go hire him, use the tax money of the people I get the privilege of representing to pay this guy, who they obviously think is a Russian spy, to hire him, who is the source of all of the false information. Danchenko never was charged with being a spy. They hired him and they paid him, Durham replied. It was over $200,000. Well, Jordan followed up by saying this guy is hanging out with Dolan, Charles Dolan, who is a buddy of the Clintons, who is also a source for the false steel dossier that was used to spy on an American citizen. In fact, don't they, Denchenko and Dolan, meet on a park bench somewhere in Arlington, Virginia, on New Year's Day? Durham replied, New Year's Day, middle of the day. Well, the Durham report shows the FBI didn't even interview Dolan. This is straight out of the movies, Jordan said, of the FBI's uncritical acceptance of the so-called steel dossier, despite its sourcing. These are two of the dumbest things I've ever heard of, the Ohio Republican added. They pay a guy who is a Russian spy who is the source of the dossier. The other source is Charles Dolan, who meets with the guy, Danchenko, on a park bench in Arlington, and the FBI agents don't want to interview him. Jordan later asked, uh, were there agents on the case who wanted to talk to Dolan? Yes, Durham answered. What happened to the FBI analyst number one? Jordan asked. She kept uh, pushing to talk with Mr. Dolan. She was ultimately turned down. What happened to her? Durham replied, at or about the same time she was assigned to a different project. Jordan seemed to want to add an explanation point to Durham's answer. They moved her. They uh, said, she, uh, we can't have this, Jordan said, of the analysts, uh, FBI superiors. We can't have you looking into the Clintons, buddy. What did she do? She memorialized it, Durham replied. Jordan explained she entered a memo to the file because she said at some point the Justice Department inspector general is going to want to know this information. Another takeaway, uh, the reputation will be damaged. That was a charge put to Durham by uh, sitting member of the uh, committee, Representative Steve Cohen from Tennessee, a Democrat, mostly taunted Durham in his comments, pointing out that Trump had appointed him to the as the U.S. attorney from Connecticut uh, before the attorney general William Barr appointed Durham as a special counsel to look into the FBI's actions in the Trump Russia case. Do you believe Mr. Trump has pretty good judgment on people, their abilities, their character? Cohen asked. I'm not going to characterize Mr. Trump or my thoughts about Mr. Trump. Durham initially answered Cohen followed by saying Mr. Trump has called Mr. Barr a gutless pig, a coward and a rhino, Republican in name only. Which of these is correct, which isn't? Durham responded, "In my experience, none of these are correct." Cohen continued to taunt the special counsel. Of course, this has nothing to do with the investigation. So, Mr. Trump isn't the uh, uh, that good a judge of character in judging people. In your opinion, he isn't? Cohen asked. He Barr is not a gutless pig, but Trump says he is. Durham, that's outside the scope of this report. Cohen, your reputation will be damaged. Everyone who gets involved with Donald Trump is damaged. He's d- damaged goods. Durham, uh, his response to Cohen drew applause from some of those in attendance uh, to the hearing when he said, my concern about my reputation is with the people who I respect and my family and my Lord, and I'm perfectly comfortable with my reputation with them, sir, Durham said. Well, then Representative Tom McClintock, on another observation from the the, uh, hearing, uh, Representative Tom McClintock A Republican from California noted in his questioning of Durham, the Steele dossier was entered into the congressional record. Was it true? Durham replied by stating what has been widely accepted for years. There's not a single substantive piece of information in the dossier that has ever been corroborated by the FBI or, to my knowledge, Anyone else? Durham said. McClintock later asked, what role did the Clinton campaign play in this hoax? Durham replied, the Clinton campaign funded the work and opposition research that was done by Fusion GPS and Fusion GPS paid Mr. Steele. Another um, interesting observation, collusion and conspiracy. Representative Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, noted that Durham's report said the FBI launched the Trump-Russia conspiracy probe without evidence or a Predicate in 2016 and continued until 2019, more than two years into Trump's presidency. To date, has any evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia been uncovered? Johnson asked. Durham seemed to try to be respectful of former FBI Director Robert Mueller, uh, who as special counsel took over the Trump-Russia investigation. There is information, of course, in the report that was prepared by Director Mueller, uh, Durham said as a um, to collusion and conspiracy... I'm not away, uh, aware of any. In 2017, uh, Mueller, I guess is the correct pronunciation, took over the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, issuing a report in 2019 that found no evidence of conspiracy or collusion between Russia and Trump or his campaign. However, the Mueller report said grounds could exist for an obstruction of justice case. During his testimony, Durham referred to Mueller as a patriot. Representative Kevin uh, Kiley from California noted that several House Democrats claimed that Trump and Russia colluded even after multiple investigations failed to find evidence of it. He read an old tweet from Representative Adam Schiff saying collusion in plain sight. Representative Jerry Nadler, ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, wrote on Twitter, obviously a lot of collusion. Representative Ted Lieu of California tweeted, we may have an illegitimate president currently occupying the White House. And Representative Eric Swalwell. Uh, wrote on Twitter, in our investigation, we saw strong evidence of collusion. In each case, Kylie asked, Mr. Durham, were those statements supported by the Mueller report? Durham responded with various variations of, I don't believe they were supported by the Mueller report or not to my knowledge. We need to take a break. You're listening to the Georgie and Rice Show, just talking about some of the takeaways from the uh, hearing yesterday. Uh, with special counsel John Durham's uh, House testimony on the FBI's Trump Russia probe. More news when we return.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've been, uh, just been talking about special counsel John Durham's uh, House testimony on the FBI's Trump Russia probe. I'll just mention one other takeaway. Representative Corey Bush. Uh, From Missouri, a member of the squad of uh, far left Democrats blasted her Republican colleagues for embracing Durham's criticism of the FBI and said Trump was pushing them to do so. St. Louis and I are here to set the record straight on this political investigation conducted on the twice impeached, twice indicted former white supremacist in chief Donald Trump. Bush said From the start, this entire investigation has been an attempt to undermine the findings of the Mueller investigation and distract the people of this country from Donald Trump's corruption, she went on to say. Now, despite what Mueller's uh, report actually said or what Durham has uh, said, Um, The Missouri Democrat went on. That's why it uh, the Durham investigation began just days after the release of the Mueller report. That's why four years later, no matter how much my colleagues uh, across the aisle claim otherwise, the Durham investigation did not exonerate Mr. Trump or any of his associates. So I guess it doesn't really matter what the report says. It just matters what you say about what the report says. In other news, the House Ways and Means Committee on Thursday released testimony from two IRS whistleblowers who said the Justice Department, FBI, and IRS interfered with the investigation of the tax evasion case against hunter biden some say it should have taken five months it took five years according to the committee chairman jason smith that testimony outlines misconduct and government abuse at the internal revenue service and the federal bureau of investigation in the investigation of hunter biden the allegations point to a steady campaign of unequal treatment of enforcing tax law department of justice interference in the form of delays Uh, Divulgences and denials into the investigation of tax crimes that may have been committed by the president's son. And finally, retaliation against IRS employees who blew the whistle on the misconduct, the committee said on Thursday. Whistleblowers describe how um, the Biden Justice Department intervened and overstepped in a campaign to protect the son of the president, by delaying, divulging and denying an ongoing investigation into the alleged tax crimes, Smith said. According to testimony released by the committee, one whistleblower, IRS Criminal Supervisory Special Agent Gary Shapley Jr. said decisions in the case seemed to be influenced by politics. Whatever the motivations, at every stage decisions were made that had the effect of benefiting the subject of the investigation. And a bit closer to home, Oregonians may soon be allowed to pump their own gas across the state after a self-service gas bill passed in the state Senate with bipartisan support 16 to 9 on Wednesday. The bill passed in the state House 47 to 10 in March and now heads to Governor Tina Kotek for a signature. House Bill 2426 doesn't eliminate attendance. Gas stations have to keep half of their pumps for attendance, and they're required to offer self-service and attendant service at the same price. The bill strikes a balance between consumer preferences, business needs, and employment considerations. That's at least what Senator Janine Salmon, a Democrat from Hillsboro and the chief sponsor of the bill said. It provides Oregonians choice at the pump while still protecting access for the elderly and disabled community members. If the governor signs the bill into law, and she's expected to, it will mark the first time since 1951 that Oregonians across the state can legally choose to fill up their vehicle on their own. Or let an attendant handle it. Before the bill passed in the state house in March, proponents said it would speed up gas lines and ease staffing shortages at gas stations. We'll see how that um, how that plays out. I think I'm officially considered a senior, so I'll be staying in the driver's seat. Russia will not release the U.S. journalist currently behind bars in Moscow, who they accuse of spying An appeal by Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich has been denied and he will be kept in detention until August. Gerskovich, 31, was arrested in late March on charges of espionage while reporting in Russia. The United States government has declared Gerskovich wrongfully detained and are demanding Russia release the journalist back into American custody. He was originally detained by Russian forces in March in the city of no, I don't have my Russian hat on. I'm not going to attempt to mispronounce it. After being accused of trying to obtain secret information on the activities of one of the enterprises of the Russian military industrial complex. At the time, the Russian foreign ministry previously recognized him as an accredited journalist. Gerskovich also worked as a reporter for agents France Press and the Moscow Times, as well as... A news assistant at The New York Times on the 27th of April, the State Department issued sanctions against Russia's top intelligence agency, the Federal Security Service, along with uh, over uh, uh, Gerskovich's uh, wrongful detainment under Russian law. He could be detained in a Russian jail for up to a year based on his charges. He faces up to 20 years in prison if found guilty. The House of Representatives voted Wednesday to censure Representative Adam Schiff for pushing claims that former President Donald Trump's 2016 campaign colluded with Russia, a vote that made Schiff just the third member of the House to be censured since the uh, turn of the century. The resolution passed 213 to 209 in a vote. Every Republican voted for. Uh, with the exception of six who voted present and every Democrat voted against it. The measure also requires the House Committee on Ethics to investigate Schiff's falsehoods, misrepresentations and abuses of sensitive information, in quotes. It was the second time the House tried to pass a resolution censoring Schiff for Representative Anna Paulina Luna. A resolution from Luna failed on the House floor last week because it recommended a fine against Schiff of 16 million dollars which Democrats and 20 Republicans opposed. With that language removed, the resolution was able to pass on a party line vote. With Luna uh, saying, um, uh, which Luna said was needed to fight back against Schiff's lies about Trump. As chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff launched an all-out political campaign built on baseless distortions against a sitting U.S. president at the expense of every single citizens of this country and the honor of the House of Representatives, Luna said before the vote. With access to sensitive information unavailable to most members of Congress and certainly not accessible to the American people, Schiff abused his privileges, claiming to know the truth while leaving Americans in the dark about his web of lies, lies so severe that they altered the course of the country forever. End quote. Schiff was a leader of Trump's first impeachment proceeding, which was launched over a phone call made to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in which he tried to leverage U.S. military aid in a bid to get him to announce an investigation of now President Biden. The vote is not the first time House Republicans have used their majority in this uh, Congress to target Schiff. Uh, McCarthy pulled Schiff off the Intelligence Committee this year for promoting claims that in 2016 in the campaign was working. Trump was working with Russia, an allegation that was never proven. A GOP lawmaker leading on uh, uh, Congress's response to big tech is calling for a commission to streamline the U.S.'s development of artificial intelligence technology, warning that Congress is moving too slow on the rapidly advancing sector. Representative Ken Buck, Republican out of Colorado, teamed up with uh, Democrat Representatives Tim Liu, or rather Ted Liu and Anna eshu uh, this week, to introduce the National AI Commission Act, which calls for a panel of 20 experts across various facets of AI to convene and advise the U.S. government on the risks and opportunities associated with it. President Joe Biden's $400 billion student loan forgiveness program survived a procedural challenge on Wednesday as the House couldn't find the votes to override his veto of a bill aimed at killing the program. The House passed a resolution in May to end the what Republicans say is an illegal attempt by the president to forgive billions in student loans, effectively throwing that debt on the backs of taxpayers, most of whom didn't attend university. After the Senate approved the same resolution, Biden vetoed it in June. On Wednesday, the House tried to override that veto, but failed to reach the two thirds majority necessary. The House voted 221 to 206 to override Biden, dozens of votes short of this target uh, thanks to Democrats who all voted to protect Biden's veto, except for two who decided with the uh, rather voted with the GOP. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder coming up in our second hour, a conversation with the president of the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America on the uh, anniversary of the Dobbs decision coming up on the 24th. And a conversation I had with James Spencer from the D.L. DL Moody Center on contentment versus anxiety. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Virginia Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin's political influence in the Commonwealth is holding pretty strong as the 10 Republican candidates he endorsed have all won their con- contested primary contests so far this year, including six victories Tuesday night. Youngkin said in a press uh, release on Tuesday, tonight we nominated strong, dedicated public servants who are committed to our common sense agenda and improving the lives of every Virginian. Uh, to all the Republicans who stepped forward to run, thank you for your desire to serve your community. Here's our opportunity. Strengthen the spirit of Virginia, empower parents, keep our neighborhoods safe, provide greater opportunities in every corner of the Commonwealth and deliver real results for everyone. End quote. All 140 General Assembly seats will be on the ballot this fall and an election that will determine party control of the legislature for the final two years of Yunkin's first term as Virginia's governor. Governors in the Commonwealth can only serve for a single four-year term before they have to step aside. Tuesday was also a good night for progressives as the only pro-life Democrat in the state Senate, Joe Morrissey, was voted out in a campaign that was largely centered on abortion. Additionally, three progressive district attorney candidates backed by George Soros also won on Tuesday night. Hollywood and movie critics have become predictable in pursuing a divisive political agenda in films, a conservative film reviewer says, leaving audiences alienated and frustrated. James Carrick, founder of Worth It or Woke, told Fox News Digital he decided to create a movie review site that is transparent about its conservative Christian perspective as an alternative to long-established film rating sites like Rotten Tomatoes. The site launched in February and has reviews from current films in theater, streaming series, and favorite films that came out years ago, which Carrick believes are worth it for audiences to see. A film enthusiast with a background in theater and philosophy, Carrick said he hopes his site will help others vote with their dollars to avoid films with woke messages. If they choose, he also hopes Hollywood will take note that they can no longer ignore or talk down to conservatives or force a radical agenda on them. He got the idea when he noticed a trend on Rotten Tomatoes years ago, that if a movie received a high critic score and significantly lower audience, Audience score the movie likely had leftist messages and elements in it. Carrick began to realize he wasn't alone in feeling the rating system was biased when he heard comedian Adam um, Carolla make a game out of the uh, uh, the phenomenon on his radio show. It was absolutely predictable how much the professional critics would bump a particular type of movie or a movie with certain leftist themes or certain intersectional quotes. Uh, being marked off or how uh, far down they would mark something like traditional masculinity in a positive light. Carrick says critics sometimes are just snobby in rejecting films that audiences like. And although Worth It or Woke explores political elements in films, the rating system gives equal weight to the film's storyline, cinematography, performance, direction and non-wokeness. An Ohio school allegedly launched a bullying campaign against two moms accusing them of being threats after they exposed left-wing bias in the school, according to a complaint. Amy Gonzalez and Andrea Gross said Columbus Academy denied re-enrollment to their children after the parents started asking questions about the school's curriculum and fiduciary compliance matters, according to the complaint filed earlier this month. Their requests for transparency were met with an overreaction from the administration, the moms said. And so when I say overreaction, I mean an overreaction of calling the police on us, alerting almost 900 faculty members that they had alerted the FBI that we were dangerous. Why is the reaction so extreme? Gross added the alleged retaliation campaign caused the community to turn against her and her family. The tension was so pervasive, Gross's daughter left the state to go to another school. Upon information and belief, the Academy's vicious treatment of the parent plaintiffs and by retaliation and their children being affected, including improperly invoking governmental investigation agencies, disseminating false information and engaging in a coordinated effort to destroy their reputations in the community, was retaliation to prevent any further inquiry financially of financial wrongdoing of the academy, the complaint said. Well, the school categorically denied all allegations in the statement, saying these allegations are entirely without any legal merit or factual basis whatsoever. Well, the court will ultimately decide. Riley Gaines testified on Capitol Hill, describing her experience swimming against Leah Thomas, the transgender male who is a female in practice. Former college championship swimmer Riley Gaines challenged the Senate Judiciary Committee chair. uh, That's Dick Durbin on Wednesday after he accused Republicans of promoting hateful rhetoric by questioning the rights of transgender youth. Gaines was on Capitol Hill as a witness for the Senate's hearing on LGBTQ civil rights, where Durbin said lawmakers need to be careful when talking about these issues. Uh, Senator Durbin, RNC Research said, you had mentioned this rhetoric. You had mentioned what message does it send to trans individuals? My combat to uh, to this is what message does this send to women, to young girls, their rights to privacy and safety thrown out the window? Riley Gaines went on to say, here's the fearless Riley Gaines explaining what it's like to have a six foot four biological male in her locker room and being told to shut up about it. This is the tolerance of the left. The Biden administration is pursuing the same type of massive resistance threatened by an earlier Democrat to frustrate school desegregation, but this time to protect abortion and potentially sterilizing treatments for gender confused youths. The Department of Health and Human Services received more than 11,000 comments on its notice of proposed rulemaking on the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act and protected health information before it closed on Friday, only 65 of which are currently accessible to the public. The proposed rulemaking, if approved, would change HIPAA's definition of person to exclude human beings before birth. Reproductive health care to broadly apply to the reproductive system and public health to exclude use and disclosure of PHI for investigations or proceedings related to reproductive health. Biden's Health and Human Services planning to change the definition of person to exclude humans before birth. John Solomon says that Biden's HHS proposal would shield sex crimes, coerced abortions and child sterilization. James, did you give me the signal to break? All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back and continue our work our uh, winding through some of the day's headlines. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Marjorie Dannensfeller, president of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. We'll talk about the anniversary of the Dobbs decision coming up on the 24th and what um, what's happened since that decision and what's likely to be needed moving forward we'll also hear a classic interview with uh, James Spencer from the DL Moody Center on contentment versus anxiety that's coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice show well gas stove emissions are comparable to breathing secondhand smoke that's the latest claim well, first, they denied the gas stove ban was taking place. Now there are studies supporting it. Los Angeles Times reports cooking with gas-fired stoves can cause unsafe levels of toxins to accumulate inside homes, exposing people to roughly the same cancer risk as breathing secondhand cigarette smoke, according to a new study. Half a, a year after the Canadian province of British Columbia decriminalized a wide range of hard drugs, including fentanyl, Drug overdoses are the leading cause of death for the majority of Canadians in the region. In a press release on Monday, the Office of Public Safety and Solicitor General said 1,018 British Columbians uh, were lost to drug overdoses between January and May, which represents a 2.9% increase since the same time this last year. Again, drug overdoses are now the leading cause of death in British Columbia due to lenient laws there. An explosion in Paris ignited fires in nearby buildings. Police are investigating after a powerful blast hit a building in Paris on Wednesday, injuring at least 24, prompting the evacuation of surrounding buildings and sending plumes of smoke into the air over the city. The cause of the explosion in Rue Saint-Jacques, and I don't speak French, so I apologize, in the city's 5th um, uh, district was not immediately known, but officials said the gas leak could be to blame. Huh. Huh. Well, Paris police chief uh, Nunez uh, told reporters a fire broke out after the explosion near the historic uh, military hospital. The police chief described some of the injuries as being critical. Well, President Biden again is threatening Americans with a line that's gotten a bit worn, weathered. Joe Biden reprised one of his favorite threats against Americans over the Second Amendment rights. That amendment, Biden insists, doesn't grant the right to own a weapon of war, and it doesn't say that you can own any weapon you want. Biden also falsely claimed that it says there are certain weapons that you just can't own. He then repeated a phony revisionist history lesson, claiming even when the Second Amendment was passed, you couldn't own a cannon. You cannot own a machine gun, Biden then criticized 2A advocates' accurate observation that the Second Amendment exists as a means of defending liberty against government tyranny. You know, he said, I love these guys who say the Second Amendment is, you know, the tree of liberty is watered with the blood of patriots. Well, if you want to to do that, you want to work against the government, you need an F-16, you need something else than just an AR-15. So if the president suddenly doesn't believe that the AR-15 is a weapon of war, then... Why does he want to ban it? Well, it's a back and forth that will continue for some time to come. Those who attack the Second Amendment are not merely attacking America's right to bear arms. They're also engaged in attacking Americans' fundamental right to individual liberty. Case in point comes via the anti-Second Amendment group Giffords Law Center and March for Our Lives, which have launched a campaign to fight gun violence, which we all want to see an end to, by seeking to get law students to sign a pledge to refuse to represent the firearms industry. This action not only aims to undermine Americans' Second Amendment rights, but also their Sixth Amendment right to counsel the online pledge calls on law students to agree to not work for any firms that require me to advocate on behalf of gun industry or gun lobby. It further adds uh, that signees will instead prioritize firms that actively fight gun violence and the industry that propagates it. The pledges are non-binding, but isn't it's intended as a moral litmus test for young lawyers. Recent analysis of the number of illegal aliens living in the United States estimates that the population sat at roughly 17 million as of 2021. The analysis was conducted by the Federation for American Immigration Reform, and it comes in at a higher number than other immigration tracking groups that estimate 11 million illegal aliens. Again, 17 million that it was in 2021. A much needed reckoning with the pandemic learning deficit. The covid pandemic has been over for some time, but the fallout from the government's overreaction to the virus continues to affect the country. Specifically, the young Americans who are at least endangered by the pandemic are experiencing some of the worst side effects of government lockdowns and social distancing. Uh, Confirming this uh, reality was Education Secretary Miguel Cordona, who admitted that the Biden administration knew the pandemic would have a devastating impact on students learning across the country and that it will take years of of effort to investigate or uh, rather um, years of effort and investment to reverse that damage as well as address the 11 year decline that preceded it. Well, on this day in history, 1937, Joe Lewis begins his reign as world heavyweight boxing champion by knocking out Jim Braddock in the eighth round of his fight in Chicago, 1944. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, more popularly known as the G.I. Bill of Rights. 1970, President Richard Nixon signs an extension of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that lowered the minimum voting age to 18. 1977, John Mitchell becomes the first former U.S. Attorney General to go to prison as he began serving a sentence for his role in the Watergate cover-up. He was released 19 months later. 1981, Mark David Chapman pleads guilty to killing John Lennon. 1992, the U.S. Supreme Court in RAV versus City of St. Paul, James, unanimously rules that the uh, hate crime laws that banned cross-burning and similar expressions of racial bias violated free speech rights. 2012, ex-Penn State assistant coach Jerry Sandusky is convicted by a jury of In Belfont, Pennsylvania, on 45 counts of sexually assaulting 10 boys over 15 years, he is appealing a 30 to 60 year state prison sentence. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders is asked to leave a Red Hen restaurant in Virginia. The co-owner said the move came at the request of gay employees who objected to Sanders' defense of President Trump's effort to bar transgender people from the military. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here in just a moment. And when we return for the second hour, my conversation with Marjorie Dannensfeller, president of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. We'll also hear from James Spencer with the D.L. Moody Center on contentment versus anxiety and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you probably know, this Saturday marks the one year anniversary of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade. It's a decision many of us worked and prayed for for decades. And when it finally came, we were sort of gobsmacked. It actually happened. What has been the consequence in these days since the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade in that the states now have the right they had prior to Roe v. Wade, and that is to determine the course their state will take with regard to the practice of abortion? Well, here to reflect on all of that is Marjorie Dannensfeller. She is president of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, the largest grassroots pro-life political group in the country. Uh, She played a key role in 2016 to get President Trump to commit to only appoint U.S. Supreme Court justices who opposed abortion, and that certainly paid off. In the 2022 election cycle, SBA Pro-Life America and its super PAC, Women Speak Out. Uh, They reached more than 8 million pro-life voters through door-to-door canvassing, voter mail, texting, digital communications, and raised a significant amount of campaign money. She's the author of Life is Winning, Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. Uh, She and her husband have five children. She joins us today to reflect on the uh, overturn of Roe v.ersus Wade and the new era of Dobbs. Marjorie, thank you so much for joining us.
3: What a delight to join you. Thank you for that intro.
2: You know, it's exciting to consider the decades of work that went into the the pro-life movement to uh, persuade America that abortion was not the right direction. And ultimately, the Supreme Court overturned a decision that we've we've dreaded for for decades I think for many people, though, they wonder, what has been the benefit? I live in the state of Oregon, and in this state, we've simply doubled down on the practice of abortion. Other states have decided we're going to make this a destination uh, state for abortion. Mm -hmm. Help us understand the landscape post-Dobbs that we can rejoice about, but also uh, reminds us that there's work to be done.
3: Both are so true. And one thing, after 50 years, of uh, battling, maybe you and I didn't do the whole fifty years, but a lot of those years, <laughs> <laughs> we battled with the idea that we would succeed. Now we we um, we battled like that. We acknowledged that maybe it, would be, it wouldn't happen in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. But because we don't do any of this alone, we do it with uh, uh, with a with an army of an organic pro life movement that is strong and building has been building for years but the leveraging that into, the, into politics was vital. And it is what led to the overturn of Roe versus Wade. What a beautiful example of what democracy unleashed can do. And that same fact is true now. Now democracy has been, is uh, unleashed. So it is allowed to flourish in this country and every legislature in the land, including the national legislature, the US Congress. And what we've seen so far uh, is almost half the country enacting laws to protect children between conception and 12 weeks, m- m- um, most of them being at conception and heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So almost half the country, 24 states, certainly a point of great victory yes. and a great point of joy. And, in, and then also, in the same breath, um, associated with about 60,000 boys and girls who are actually saved, not theoretically saved, their mothers are now receiving the care that they deserve that actually addresses the root causes of why they ended up at that clinic door in the first place, why they were tempted to go there, why they thought breaking the bond between mother and child by eliminating their child uh, would somehow fix the problems that they were facing. Now she's getting holistic, comprehensive, beautiful, loving care offered to her instead of, um, instead of aborting the life of her child. On the Federal level, and this they're everyone looking at the current climate could say, "Oh my gosh, that's impossible! There's no way you could ever enact some minimum standard, getting us in line with Europe." You know, uh, they're at they're 47 out of 50 of those countries have a limit abortion before 15 weeks, most of those at 12. You know, that could never happen, and we're just too divided. There's no way that could happen. Look at look at Capitol Hill; they can't get anything done. Um, I say to impossible, look at what just happened. Look at the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Right. And then states like Oregon and California, Illinois, New York, um, will you will be working for change. We know that is true. That's how politics works. And, and you've got the same tools in Oregon that we have nationally. But if we have that federal minimum standard, which we must, it at least provides that minimum standard for a state. A state cannot go beyond the... What is established on the federal level, whether it's 15 weeks or heartbeat or or whatever. Um, so to me, those seem like the benefits. What's been beautiful that's happened, and some of the challenges. And of course, just to add another challenge, I'm sure you know, is that all of the beautiful protections that have been passed, along with incredible legislation to serve mothers, um, the left and the abortion lobby, the Democrats are going into. Uh, uh Enact ballot start ballot initiatives to in, inject abortion into red state constitutions to undo all those beautiful protections So game on and uh, it is not a game It is actually unleashing of all sorts of demons on the other side But it is definitely the fruit though of putting a lid on democracy for 50 years Now we finally have the tools yeah, and absolutely. it's time to get to work. You know, Oregon,
2: despite our, our history with regard to abortion, has a strong, vibrant and committed pro-life community that will continue to do the work that's been going on here for decades. So it is encouraging. This victory was won, but at a great cost. The rise in violence against pregnancy resource centers and pro-life Uh, ministries and organizations increased across the country as well. And unsurprisingly, under the current administration, there hasn't seemed to be an appropriate response to the crimes that have been committed against the pro-life community.
3: No, quite the opposite. Using of the FBI to raid a Catholic father's home, uh, armed with guns, and a huge family terrified. Um, All he's doing is praying in front of pregnancy care centers. I mean, I'm sorry, in front of abortion clinics, mm-hmm. yes, and on the on Capitol Hill, there was a vote just a, uh, uh, not long ago um, on the House side, to of which it was a resolution to condemn the violence against pregnancy centers, against um, churches, against pro-life leaders across the country. Uh, it, w- it, it was passed, but on a complete party line vote, Democrats voted against condemning the violence. And the, and the president is using the FBI to go after, um, to go after good people who are, uh, who are exercising their First Amendment rights. So it is, there's an elderly man in Baltimore who was bludgeoned for praying outside of Planned Parenthood. Plane. The list is, yes. goes on and on and on. They are angry and they are moneyed, uh, and they are spun up. Um, but we have the truth, and we have we have a galvanized young new pro life movement uh, and so there is reason for great hope in the in the face of such terrible violence absolutely.
2: And I appreciate your bringing up the fact that there is a young generation that is committed to the pro life cause. And I, as a person who's been in the movement for a number of years, it's encouraging to see that generation being raised up in leadership. I, I know one of the fronts in the pro-life movement today is the chemical abortion. And there are court cases about whether or not it should be made available, under what circumstances, whether or not it's safe. Can you give us a, a glimpse of what we might expect in the days ahead as we Uh, witness what's happening over what has become one of the more um, prominent ways of women seeking to end their pregnancies, the chemical abortion. Yes,
3: That's right. Over half of abortions are committed because of of chemical abortion, the two pill approach to first starving and then ejecting uh, the child. Uh, And there is a court case in Texas, a federal case um, that is uh, going after the FDA and it's uh, I would say criminal approach to handling the abortion pill, and eliminating any regulation around a woman taking the pill, and then only requiring deaths to be reported to the FDA, not uh, not anything else like a hemorrhage or 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 anything else that can happen during during an abortion. Um, the regulations were taken away for uh, having to have a pre um, a pre-abortion exam. Um, or or what or provide a sonogram for what stage the baby is. So you could take the pill at any point because you don't really know when, um, wh- how old that baby is. And the limit, safely, they say, there's no safe abortion, but is, is at 10 weeks. Just recently in the UK, there was a woman who took these pills at 32 weeks. There's nothing keeping anyone from doing mm. that because the pills are going straight to women in the mail. Yeah. The abortion lobby is making sure this happens. And the administration is doing nothing to stop the trafficking of those pills through the mail. So there, our post office that we support every day and we see is a facilitator of, of chemical abortions every single day to the tune of 54% of all abortions in the nation. So it is a huge threat. We've got to pray for this court case and also for governors at this point who do have the power um, to, uh, to, if not stop, at least regulate how these pills are dispensed. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the
2: 24th is a day to celebrate, to reflect, and to strengthen our commitment to continue to move forward on behalf of the unborn and for women who struggle with unplanned pregnancies. But it is certainly an opportunity for us to celebrate and uh, to move forward. I I wanted to mention that the Los Angeles Times called you the woman who brought down Roe. (laughs) Uh, because of the role you played in uh, influencing the, the then president Trump in appointing Supreme court justices, you've played a significant role in the pro-life community and leadership. I want to commend you for that. And also to encourage you and others who are listening, who have been on the front lines to continue in the battle. There's so much at stake and uh, this victory should be a great uh, incentive for us to, uh, to move forward effectively and to trust that what we think is impossible just might be
3: possible in our lifetime. Amen. And you know, no one does it alone. Uh, We all need each other, and we do this together as a movement in ways that makes us all better. And I want to thank you. I want to thank you because I know that you have never given up, and I'm very grateful to your leadership as well. Thank you so much.
2: Have a great afternoon. Same to you. Thank you. Bye bye. Again, Marjorie Dannensfeller is the president of the Susan B. Anthony Pro Life America on the anniversary of Dobbs, which is uh, approaching the 24th. Was the um, day that decision was made. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from James Spencer. He's with the D.L. Moody Center on contentment versus anxiety and the love of money. All of that coming up.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Bible warns believers very clearly about the dangers of wealth. Even secular sources acknowledge the pitfalls of greed. The University of California, Berkeley, released a report and it states psychologists who studied the impact of wealth and inequality on human behavior have found that money can powerfully influence our thoughts and actions in ways that we're often unaware of, no matter our economic circumstance. Research is uncovering how wealth impacts our sense of morality, our relationships with others and our mental health. Well, that's one of the subjects that's being covered in Becoming Useful to God, Biblical Reflections Inspired by D.L. Moody. The D.L. Moody Center is uh, their latest devotional, addresses the issues like wealth and greed from a unique biblical perspective. It's week five in an eight week study free from the love of money. Well, Dr. James Spencer uses Job 31, verses 24 and 28 as a way to discuss the purposes of money in a Christian life. There to uh, use in service of God rather than self-serving. Well, that subject and many others are covered in this great devotional. Well, here to talk with us about that is James Spencer. He is a theologian and Christian leader who helps individuals and organizations ask and answer the necessary questions so that they can move forward from where they are to where God wants us, wants them to be. He earned his PhD in theological studies from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, serves as an administrator and leader in Christian higher education. He continues to consult with Christian colleges and seminaries as well as nonprofit organizations to help them build stronger organizational capacity he currently serves as president of dl moody center an independent nonprofit organization inspired by the life and ministry of dwight moody and dedicated to proclaiming the gospel and challenging god's uh, call to follow jesus thank you so much for joining us we're looking forward to talking about this uh, devotional that's available to our listeners dr spencer yeah welcome. thanks
1: for having me thanks for having me
2: Well, it's a real joy to have you. I want to begin sort of at the beginning and not assume that all of our listeners are familiar with the D.L. Moody Center, and for that matter, D.L. Moody. So let's start at the beginning, and maybe you can give us a bit of background.
1: Sure. Dwight Moody was a 19th century evangelist. He traveled uh, the United States and really uh, large portions of the world proclaiming the gospel. Um, He also started three schools, two in Northfield, Massachusetts, a small town in Western Mass, Uh, Northfield Seminary for Girls and Mount Hermon School for Boys, and those were more like boarding schools for teenage boys and girls who couldn't afford an education otherwise. And then he started the Chicago Bible Institute, which is now the Moody Bible Institute. Mm -hmm. Um, He also held summer conferences uh, on the property that D.L. Moody Center owns and operates in Northfield, Mass. And these summer conferences were designed to just invite Christians of all different sorts of denominations and perspectives to come together for worship, for prayer, for Bible study, and to discern the Holy Spirit. And D.L. Moody really believed that when he brought Christians together to do those four things, that God would do great things through them. And so the D.L. Moody Center is an organization that is dedicated to echoing that message, to um, continuing that work, and to really convening, challenging, and, uh, and encouraging Christians to proclaim the gospel uh, through word and deed. I appreciate that's what, uh, that's what we do.
2: I appreciate that the in the description of the DL Moody Center, it's a destination for spiritual renewal, and you work in right. concert with local churches, and um, that's that's such uh, a, a needed partnership for local churches, many of which struggle with resource. So this is a tremendous opportunity for very the much. church.
1: Yeah, very much, and we we really enjoy hosting uh, you know smaller churches, smaller men's retreats, smaller women's retreats. Um, It's been great to have the facilities to just um, provide low-cost accommodations and a nice, quiet place for those groups to get together and really um, pray, worship, study, and uh, think about where the Holy Spirit is leading them together. Mm,
2: And it's wonderful to be able to get away for a moment to really reflect on those
1: things. (laughs) That's
2: right. We're talking today about a resource that you've recently produced, Becoming Useful to God, Biblical Reflections, inspired by D.L. Moody. And it's part of the Shine Bright 365 um, effort. Can you describe the uh, devotional and the Shine Bright movement, if you will?
1: Sure. So the devotional is really based on a book that we recently published called Useful to God. And Useful to God is, uh, is, was really a um, modernization of a book written by a gentleman named R.A. Torrey, who was a contemporary of D.L. Moody. And he wrote a book called Why God Used D.L. Moody and listed seven characteristics um, that he felt made D.L. Moody useful to God. And so the book contains seven of those characteristics in addition and one uh, additional characteristic that I've added. Um, And we've sort of updated that text and and made it more accessible for a modern audience. And the goal is really to alert Christians of the fact that, you know, we focus on who we are in Christ. God is going to be able to do many more things through us than if we just focus on what it is that we're doing on a daily basis. And so we need to cultivate these characteristics in us in the same way that D.L. Moody cultivated these characteristics in himself. The the Shine Bright 365 campaign is really in line with that. What we're doing there is we're trying to get Christians to understand that we're to be doers of God's Word, and we're not just supposed to learn. Discipleship is not just about learning or education. It's about learning to obey, learning to observe all Christ commanded. And so the Shine Bright 365 campaign provides exercises and disciplines for Christians to walk into on a daily basis that will lead them toward a more faithful witness to Jesus Christ.
2: How are we doing in general um, as the body of Christ and being useful to God? And and perhaps we should take a moment to describe what does it mean to be useful to God?
1: Yeah, I think when Neil Moody used the term, what he was really trying to convey was each individual Christian surrendering their own ambitions to the Lord and following after Him in all things that they did. Uh, one of the things that's written in the Northfield Seminary for Girls handbook that I found uh, compelling and helpful was they encouraged the students to read their Bibles. And uh, the way they phrase it is like this. They say, we want students to experimentally test the meaning and value of the scriptures by doing God's word. And and I think that that is really where um, the modern-day Church needs to sort of get back to doing that. We need to get back to just doing the basics of the faith, focusing in on who we are supposed to be in Christ, doing these small, what I would would consider sort of the foolish activities in the eyes of the world—prayer, worship, uh, community together, serving, um, caring for the poor, caring for those who are on the fringes of society. These are things that um, are odd and strange and mark us out as, as Christ followers in unique and important ways. And so the extent to which the church is doing that, I think, varies. I think some of it is um, many times we just don't hear the really good stories that are, are sort of out there. And so my sense is that the the Church overall is doing more of this than we often see, because we tend to get a little bit too involved in the scandals and the bad stuff. Um, But the reality is that uh, I I would say New England is a fantastic microcosm of this. You know, New England has the impression that the Church is sort of spiritually dead. And yet, as we work in New England, what we continue to uncover is um, the faithful— Christian groups, small groups of Christian people who are just embattled, they're continuing the good fight, they're doing things on a small scale, Uh, 10-year prayer movements, small discipleship movements, and these these Christians are pushing forward in the right ways. They're there, they're just not as prominent as some of the other things that we often see going on. And so I I have a tendency to believe that the church is in better shape than maybe Mm -hmm. we think it is. And, uh, and, and that part of what we need to do is start focusing on the positive things that we're doing as believers and as a body of believers so that we can really motivate ourselves and, and continue the good work that, that seems to be going on already.
2: Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I'm here in Portland, Oregon, and we have a reputation here as well. But I do know that the church is at work and moving and people are faithfully praying and serving. So you're absolutely right. We may have an impression of what uh, the church is or isn't doing, but we know the scripture says the gates of hell it's not going to prevail against the church. That's right. And when we decide as individuals and corporately as the community of faith, when we decide that we're going to faithfully honor God, he's going to move in ways that aren't going to make the headlines here in the Oregonian, <laughs> um, but he God is at right. work. He's He's faithful to every generation and will use those who faithfully serve him. Now, I mentioned one subject, free from the love of money, and I want to kind of plant, uh, plant ourselves there um, when we come back from sure. the break. But this really covers, as you mentioned, a number of subjects, uh, and they're divided into Into I believe it's eight weeks, surrendered, prayerful, studious, humble, free from the love of money, consumed with passion for the lost rather than just critiquing the lost, imbued with power from on high and undistracted. This is a great study intended for what period of time?
1: It's intended to be over eight weeks, Mm -hmm. um, but obviously people can take as much time as they need. We recognize that, you know, going through any one of those topics may take you a, a month. Um, to really start to get into it and master it. And so um, it is designed for eight weeks, but uh, folks should take as much time as they need to really master those uh, disciplines.
2: Again, we're talking with uh, Dr. James Spencer. He is president of the D.L. Moody Center and author of Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. And I should mention he's the author of several uh, books. We're just talking about the one uh, devotional today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. James Spencer. He's president of the D.L. Moody Center. He's also the author of a new devotional, which, by the way, is free and available to you online Useful to God Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. And I'm so grateful for this resource. I wanted to spend some time talking about one area that you cover in this devotional to give our listeners perhaps some idea of the depth and breadth of what they might expect. And that's the chapter that has to do with the love of money. We are just emerging from a pandemic. We're in the midst of a season of inflation, economic downturn, high prices, and our attention is rightly focused on the challenge, but it's entirely possible for us as Americans to have our focus in a, uh, in such a way that it is contrary to what God intends for us. Talk a little bit about the subject of free, being free from the love of money and why this made the devotional.
1: Yeah, I, I think part of why it made the devotional was, you know, D.L. Moody had a way about running ministry that he, uh, RH4 phrases it like this, um, millions of dollars came through D.L. Moody's hands, but none of it stuck to his fingers. And so he allowed money to flow through his hands into his ministry and really had no particular concern about how much wealth he was amassing. In fact, on his deathbed, he tells his uh, family, um, I've always been an ambitious man, ambitious not to leave you with many, much wealth or with, uh, or with a lot of assets, but with much work to do. And I, I think that there's something that we need to learn from that. I think that we often get a little bit too obsessed with our financial situation, and that is not to diminish the very real needs that people have. But the reality is that um, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And our lives are not governed by how much money we make, how much money we save, how much money we earn, or how much money we may earn. Um, they're governed by how well we can walk obediently with the Lord. And so I I think there's a reason that Paul equates greed with idolatry. Um, And I I think part of that is that, um, you know, we really can't serve God and manna all at the same time. We, We truly have to make a choice. And if we're going to choose God, then the anxieties about money, the fear about money, the fear about our daily needs have to sit, go, become secondary. Because truly we are supposed to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness so that God will give all those other things to us.
2: I think at this season, there's a lot of fear surrounding money. What, what's the future going to hold in terms of the economy um, you use Job 31 verses 24 through 28 as a way to discuss the purpose of money in a Christian's life. Can you talk a little bit about that and where we place concern about decisions others are making about uh, whether or not the money we do have is going to be enough? Should we look to Washington or in this case, Salem, where our capital is for the kind of security that most of us want?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think there's an appropriateness to looking to the government for um, some level of security. God puts the government in place, and so we don't want to completely discount the government. I think where we make our mistake is that we supplant the gift and the giver.
3: Hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, when the government becomes something that supplants God, that we forget that God is the one who has given the government to us, and when the government can't provide, we're not out of options. Because God has limitless possibilities that he is able to use to provide for us. I think that's sort of the, the answer to the back half of your question. Um, when we look at the book of Job, I mean, what we see here is Job really very much sort of repenting and, and, and kind of saying, you know, listen, if I, were, if I were trusting in money, if I were trusting in gold, if this is where my confidence was, then there would certainly be iniquity. There would be sin here. But the reality is, it's not. It, his trust is not the money. I mean, if you think about what Job went through, he lost everything, uh, almost more than everything, everything but his own life. And uh, he he still stays faithful to God. He still continues to look to God and say, I don't think I've done anything wrong. I still find you worthy of worship. I'm still going to be faithful to you. I'm not going to uh, compromise my beliefs or my integrity here. I'm just going to wait until you reveal what all of the suffering has been about and trust you that even though I've lost everything, things are going to be okay. And, and I think that that's sort of the attitude that we have to start to cultivate, and we need to start to cultivate it in, in two ways. Number one, when we lose things, and I think we're, you know, you mentioned the pandemic, I think we have lost something mm-hmm. as a people and a nation. There's a very real sense of unsettledness that we're dealing with, and that's a loss. Uh, Many people have lost their jobs or their homes or their, you know, their 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 security, their their weekly paycheck. And those are real losses. And we have to look at those things and say, okay, is God still worthy despite all of these things? And the answer to that needs to be yes for Christians. At the same time, the second part is we also need to look at this in terms of generosity. Is that um, we should not. Find our security and money to the extent that we are unwilling to give, that we're unwilling to help our brothers and sisters in Christ or just the world at large. Because at the end of the day, the money is not what gives us our security. It's always God. And he's provided us with this wealth for a reason. And what we need to be doing is looking with eyes to see and listening with ears to hear so we understand how to distribute that wealth in a wise manner that is going to glorify him.
2: One of the things you write about is greed and greed has been elevated to virtually a virtue in our our culture. The scripture refers to it as a a form of idolatry. Can you talk a little bit about um, greed and selfishness uh, in in particular in view of um, economic hard times? What do we deprive ourselves of if we rely solely on what we can produce through our own efforts without um, recognizing the role that God plays in providing for our needs?
1: Yeah, I think there's a, you know, I always go back to Deuteronomy, and I'm I'm an uh, Old Testament theology guy, so I always go back to Deuteronomy. But um, in Deuteronomy, one of the things that God warns the Israelites about is forgetting God when he has provided them with cisterns that they did not dig and houses that they did not build and vineyards that they did not plant. In other words, um, when we get wealth, we somehow begin to think that it is by the strength of our own hand that we have accumulated it. We forget that it's a gift from God, that it's something He's given us. And I think the biggest danger for us, when we think about greed as idolatry, that there—that that is an important and real um, e- equation that Paul makes there. Uh, because when we forget God, we begin to worship money. And what that has, the implications that that has are, are almost endless, um, because as we begin to worship money, what we realize is that we have to work to get more of it. Money is not a kind master, in other words. <laughs> um, it sort of makes demands on us that God doesn't really make. Um, and, and I think within the context of, of, you know, biblical theology, one of the things that I would say is money never gives us time to rest. Money never mm-hmm. really gives us time to worship God. It's an mm-hmm. endless cycle of production, and we become cogs in a machine without really even knowing it. But when we worship God, when that is the focal point of who we are, when we, when we trust and love and find our security in Him, when we remember Him as opposed to forgetting Him, He gives us rest. He gives us peace. And it's not that there's no work or effort in that. It's that the work and effort that we put in is, is sort of uh, empowered by God. It, it's, uh, he gives us a peace that surpasses our understanding. And so um, that, to me, is the real distinction between working for God and working for money. The two just aren't equal masters, because God can provide so much more beyond what money could ever provide for us. And so when we work for money, we're really working for a secondary master. And ultimately, we're becoming slaves to it in a way that um, diminishes who we are as human beings.
2: Hmm. So on the one hand, we have the option of contentment. And on the other hand, slavery. That's right. Seems like a pretty yeah. clear choice to me, but sometimes we struggle making the right one. Well, I am it's so de- Yeah, yeah. I'm so delighted with the devotional that we've been talking about. We focused on one area, but there are eight areas. Becoming Useful to God, Biblical Reflections, Inspired by D.L. Moody. How can our listeners uh, download a copy?
1: So they can just go. This is a free resource that we're offering. It's uh, moodycenter.org backslash useful to God. And all they do is go in fill in their name uh, and email, and they can download a free copy of it at moodycenter.org backslash useful to God. I'll
2: make sure we put that uh, information on our online resource, the Facebook page, and also the station page, kpdq.com. Thank you so much for your leadership um, at the uh, the center and for taking the time to put the devotional together and to talk with us about it here today.
1: Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Again, becoming useful to God, biblical reflections inspired by D.L. Moody. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. As we mentioned earlier this hour, this Saturday marks the one year anniversary of the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade from 1776. To 1973. Everyone knew there was no right to abortion in the Constitution, no right to destroy innocent babies in our Constitution. The Supreme Court invented that right some 50 years ago, and the pro-life movement tirelessly fought against that lie for 50 years. Finally, after three appointments by President Donald Trump, the Supreme Court corrected that terrible lie on the 24th of June 2022. Well, the court's majority declared that decision about abortion Uh, were best left to the people and their elected representatives, not unelected judges. And because of the Dobbs decision, an estimated 60,000 babies survived. The Biden-Harris White House, however, isn't celebrating. They're vowing to do everything they can to restore abortion on demand by constitutional or federal authority. They're hosting a series of pro-abortion events all week. Including a joint event this Friday featuring the three largest pro-abortion groups, the president and his vice president are running for re-election on a stack of dead babies. That's what Gary Bauer, how he described it. Think about that. The left's obsession with either dead children or mutilated children is um, macabre. That's just um, that's just the way it is. But who is the pro-life movement? Who are um, the men and women who stand? Between the abortionist and the child and the mother who needs help. Well, the reason um, Gary Bauer asked that question is because every church in America should be celebrating this Sunday. Every church that believes in the God who commanded us to choose life so that you and your descendants may live should celebrate the removal of child sacrifice from our Constitution, just like slavery Abortion was based on the same flawed idea that some human beings have no rights we're obligated to respect. The Supreme Court got it wrong in Dred Scott, and it was wrong again in Roe v. Wade. Too many churches were silent one year ago when the Dobbs decision was announced. They can correct that this Sunday in celebrating life as God commanded. There's still time. Urge your pastors to celebrate life from the pulpit this Sunday. And in the process to ask the question, Lord, what would you have me do in protecting life and supporting women with unsupported or unplanned pregnancies in the days ahead? The challenge continues, especially in the states of Oregon and Washington, but we can rejoice that we are one step closer to valuing the sanctity of human life. I want to thank James Blend for engineering today's program and... uh, well, I guess he um, produced as well. James B- Blend did it all today. Also want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day and hope you will join us here tomorrow as we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news as along, along with the headlines. And we'll share this week's Christian outlook. Have a great night.
0: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook.